This episode is in honor of International Women's Day. I want to make sure we honor and respect and appreciate all women across the globe. I want to give a special thanks to the guests of this episode and for her courage and the beautiful story that she's going to share with us. I hope you enjoy. Happy International Women's Day. When I was younger, you know, I would hear these stories about women, um, women who, you know, they were possessed by jinns. So jinns are creatures that are made of smokeless fire um, and they are a thing, like they exist, like in Islam. And similar, like, you know, other other uh, worldly creatures. So, for example, angels, like in Christianity, Abrahamic religions, there's angels. So, um, jinns are one of, you know, one of those other worldly creatures. Um, and so, when I was growing up, I heard stories of women being possessed by jinns or women who had fallen in love with jinns. And um, the reason why was because... Like they exhibited these symptoms of being possessed. Um, and one of those symptoms would be like the women's being so reckless in love. You are listening to the Derek Asante podcast, a show that brings you insightful conversations about everyday topics. We just aim to keep the discussion above the average. Our guests are the ones bringing the social proof to the conversation. Let's get into it. I'm your host, Eric Asante, and today we are speaking with a new friend from an old sandbox. This young woman not only has accomplished so much professionally, but she continues to share her gifts with the world in other ways, including her new book, The Shaitan Bride. Please help me welcome as we all get to learn about this new friend of mine and fellow author, creative individual with a spirit that continues to assist others, Samaya Mateen. Welcome. Thank you so much, Derek, for the introduction and for welcoming me on your podcast. I'm super excited to be here. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm more excited to have you on, on board because I think the individual that connected us is one that means a lot to me as a mentor of mine. And so when, you know, when he suggested you, I was like, perfect. I did a little bit of digging uh, as much as I possibly could. And I was excited. I was really excited. And so I'm just glad that you're, you're able to make this happen. Yeah, I think it'll be a great conversation. For sure, for sure. So I usually open with a quote um, with each episode. And the quote that I have for you, I'm going to share that with you. Uh, it's by Errol Ozan. I'm pronouncing their name right. Um, and I just want you to share with me what comes to mind when you hear that quote. Right? Yeah. It reads Some beautiful paths cannot be discovered without getting lost. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. It resonates me quite a, quite a bit. In what ways? Yeah. So, you know, I guess I'll, I'll bring it back to my memoir, The Shaitan Bride. Mm. It's like, in that story that I share, which is a coming of age story, I talk about, you know, my migration from Taka, Bangladesh to Thunder Bay, Ontario, and then Toronto. So just 
the early formative years of my life, uh, also just early adolescence, going into young adulthood. And I share some of the, you know, different challenges that I experienced and the different messages that I received from all the different worlds that I inhabited and how I made sense of them. It's truly a soul-searching story more than anything else. And, you know, along that path, there were a lot of trials and tribulations that, you know, I, I kind of went through and a uh, sense that I had to make for myself. So I think in sort of getting lost on that journey, I also found myself in so many ways and discovered what was important to me. Wow. I'm curious now because as soon as you mentioned Thunder Bay, I'm like, I've been there once. I liked it. And and I'm curious to get more about that when we get there. But let's start from the beginning. Um, tell me a bit about your family and, and how many you know siblings you have and so forth. Yeah, so I am the eldest. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. So the age gap with my sister and I is about uh, five years or so, and with my brother, about seven. Okay. And we migrated to Canada when I was just six years old. How was that like when you first landed? Yeah, so it's it's my my book, The Shaitan Bride, talks a lot about this in, in the early chapters. Mm-hmm. But I would say that, you know, like in terms of thinking back to my life in Bangladesh, obviously, like those were the very early years of my life that I had spent there. So mm-hmm. the memories of that time come back to me in sort of frag- fragments and just sights, sounds, smells, um, physical sensations, the nostalgia, like it's very specific, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, not detailed. It's It's very interesting. So you know, I think about that and I think about like the early days of stepping foot onto Canada and Thunder Bay where the my experience of just even the land and the space around me differed so much. So, for example, in my memoir, I talk about how in Taka, Bangladesh, it's so crowded and, you know, for majority of um, you know my experience there, I remember sort of walking through these roads um, where there are a lot of cars, rickshaws, people, uh, like a, a certain density. Whereas when I entered Canada and Thunder Bay, the experience of space was totally something else. Like the houses were separated um, mm. very far from one another. There was a lot of like trees and um, like it's it just felt like I was traveling to a different land altogether. Um, so I would say that, yeah, like in terms of how it was like, I think physically it felt very different. And then it was just a whole new world that I sort of had to situate myself in. So, you know, of course, people looked different. Um, There was like different things I would see on television. You know, in, in my book, I talk about growing up watching like Bollywood films or, you know, reading about, um, like certain from certain authors, uh, seeing a lot more diversity on on the, the on television or hearing music differently, or and, and so and then moving to Thunder Bay, it's like it's a what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is, is very different. So, sort of 
making sense of of those differences. Um, yeah. Yeah. Was it was it a bit surreal for you? Like, I found that when I first came um, to Canada, that it was going to end, meaning it was like a dream, and that at some point I'm going to wake up and I'm back home. Did you did you experience anything like that where it seemed so surreal, so different from what you just came from, and that you know it might end one day? Was that something that you experienced at all, or no? That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, I never, I don't think I ever felt as if I was going to return to that place, at least not consciously. Right. Um, I think it's interesting because there's always, like people of diaspora, I think they always carry the places that they've been to with them. Mm-hmm. And that's even just growing up in Canada, you know, there would always be sort of these like little, little triggers like sight sounds smells or Mm. like maybe uh like a seeing the face of someone that looked familiar to me in a photograph for example um and like that would sort of bring up these memories or these sort of like this really interesting longing or yearning or connection to this faraway place that obviously changes and evolves throughout time but you know it's it's like Certain experiences can trigger those those memories, but yeah. when they come up or when they came up in the past, they were sort of like with me. But I don't think it ever felt like I would return there um, permanently. In my story, I, it's interesting because I, I talk a little bit about how, you know, like throughout time, those memories sort of, they kind of lessen or not lessen, but... They fade a bit. Yeah. And or maybe get buried, um, just sort of maybe not as a, they're not as immediate. Yeah. And you know, like in the early the one of the early chapters, I talk about how you know my extended family members. I spent so much time with them, and I remember every single detail about them. Uh, and then that kind of slowly morphed into these late night conversations that would sort of happen sporadically like long distance calls where I could barely hear who was on the other end of the line. And, you know, the, the other person would ask me questions about my life and it, it would feel like so strange sharing such details because, you know, it's not like the relatives are sort of with me in my day to day, you know, going through life with me here in Canada. So over time, it's like that, that, that connection sort of changes a little bit. Yeah. It's always there. Um, but it, it just morphs and changes. Yeah. So, it, it's so interesting. I feel like with diaspora, it's like they, they, the places that you go to never completely leave you and you never completely leave them. They just evolve. Yeah. Um, and they even mean different things to you as you as a person evolve. Yeah. Like the meanings that I would attribute, um, they've shifted over time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because... It has to happen that way, I believe, because of the simple fact that you're growing, you're becoming someone else, right? You're changing. Yeah. And so with that, you have to make room for new experiences. And sometimes that's where I think you're describing with it fading, um, you know, the past kind of fading or being suppressed into a different space. And it's because you're making room to, for, you know, to experience the new uh, experiences that you're going through. So I think. Exactly. And it's interesting because the, the, those physical locations, those 
places are also changing yes. as well and evolving throughout time. Yes. But sometimes what happens is we sort of remember them in a very static way. And it's very specific and based on our specific memory and experiences. But yep. the, the reality is that those places are also changing. That's right. Now, how you were raised, right? What were some of the benefits, would you say, that you, you can identify? Just thinking back when you were younger, the experiences that you went through, what were some of the benefits in the way that you were raised? Well, I think I had extremely loving parents. You know, even though my book is about an attempted forced marriage, um, you know, overall, I would say, you know, my experience of my parents have been that they're like very loving people. Um, and I've, I feel that like there are a lot of strengths that each of my parents uh, have that have sort of left imprints on me. They're very two very different people, very unique personalities, very different from each other. But and I feel like I'm a bit of a combination of both my mom and my dad. Um, so, you know, with my dad, for example, you know, I've always had a, a, a strong connection to him. I think one of the things that like, I really appreciate in terms of my upbringing with him is that he's, he'd always be, you know, sharing stories with me. And actually storytelling is something that's very common in my family. And I do remember that even in Bangladesh growing up where, you know, all my extended family members, um, my grandmother, my nani, like they'd always share stories of different things that had happened to them in very animated ways, mm -hmm. full of life, full of expression. It was always very interesting to listen to. Um, or, you know, they, those stories always, always would have some sort of lesson um, or moral of the story that, you know, they, they sort of try to communicate. So, so I, I remember myself always being so engaged, listening to, to these stories. And, uh, you know, with my dad, like coming to Canada, he's, he sort of kept that up. Like he would always share stories of, you know, the prophets in our religion or share stories of his own life experiences, you know, different, um, different, troubles that he might have gone through and sort of what he's learned through those. And I think that was really valuable for me, um, even though, you know, a lot of times I was just sort of listening, not really saying much. Right. Back. Right. I, I feel those stories have stayed with me and they've they've uh, left imprints because it's almost like I go back in my mind and I'll kind of pull from my bank of stories right. that was shared with me. Right. Uh, and if I'm ever sort of in a quandary or some kind of situation, I have that to kind of think back to. Uh, with my mom, you know, just seeing her, well, my dad as well, like as immigrant parents, the level of, you know, uh, tenacity and fire and endurance that they both have in terms of and persistence and resilience in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, facing systemic barriers in various institutions, for example, like in, in the employment, um, in terms of employment, in terms of, you know, other barriers, um, language barriers, for example, uh, just seeing how they've they've sort of overcome a lot of those challenges and continue to push towards their goals. With my mom, for example, you know, I remember when I was younger, how she would have like multiple jobs at the same time, she'd be contributing to the community, going to potlucks, cooking for her neighbors, you know, mm. going to the, the mosque, um, it, and still having time to check up to see if we've done our homework. So I think, you know, considering the, 
the amount of stress that immigrant families sometimes experience and parents, you know, they're, they're also adjusting to a new place. Like, I, I think I've always looked up to, to them as both of my parents as being really resourceful and resilient people. And that's something, especially as the, you know, the eldest child that I've noticed and, and sort of, um, I think out of choice and out of responsibility also emulated mm-hmm. as well. Is there, is, is there a lot of pressure, um, being the eldest? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Especially as a as a female uh, within my cultural context, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. In, in what sure. areas, though? Is it every in pretty much every area, or is it you know just in the education and or? Um, yeah. 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 So you know, I think it really depends on the family. It depends on the individuals that are involved. So you can't generalize completely. Um, But I will say like in my personal experience, you know, and I think a lot of other sort of folks that immigrate uh, to the West, it's there sometimes is like sort of expectations around, um, you know, education, around um, work, around like career success, because people sometimes look to the West as a sort of a place where, you know, it's, it's filled like at least the way that, you know, the West is sort of uh, marketed, shared with yeah. the market. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the word. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, Hey, it's the West, you know, they have, it's a land of opportunities. It's right. a land of growth it's success of, you know, the way that people see the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there naturally are some expectations around the kind of life that you would live. Right. So I think that, follows a lot of immigrant families when they move to new new spaces in, in the West. Yeah. Um, so I think that's definitely there. Um, and also, I think just naturally, you know, wanting to sort of establish yourself in a new place, like making sure that, you know, like you can take care of your, um, your immediate family or your potentially your future family, just like very normal things that anybody would do when they move to a new place in terms of getting settled. So the pressures around that are there for sure. Uh, I think in general, and of course I'm generalizing here, like for a lot of, you know, people of South Asian diaspora, uh, specifically women, there are pressures around marriage um, and like making sure that you are, um, you know, get married by a certain age. And maybe that's also like spread goes across different cultures as well, not just South Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that like, that's something in society. I don't think has completely gone away. I think, you know, a lot of times women are still, uh, you know, their, their value and their identity and their worth, like it's still somewhat centered around whether they're not with someone, right. like they have a partner or they're, or a mother, like the, the, the traditional roles around being a woman, I yeah. think, you know, the attitudes around that, that's still something that exists. And so I think that um, is sort of something that's sort of always, always there. So in my personal experience, you know, I think it's probably similar to a lot of uh, South Asian first generation um, eldest daughter yeah. experiences <laughs> where there are a lot of high expectations and in a lot of these departments. Right. Right. Wow. So uh, I'm curious now you grew up basically in Canada because you came at such a young age. 
what's your stance or your view, your experience, your thoughts, your opinion on on that, like the arranged marriage and 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 that part of the culture? Like, what's your view on it now? You know, I personally, and I kind of share this in, in my memoir a lot because I explore the difference between arranged marriage, forced mm-hmm. marriage, and just marriage as a concept in general. So like wait, sorry, had- sorry. So there is a difference between, I mean, I didn't even know there was a thing as forced. Oh, I, yes. I thought it was oh my just gosh. arranged. No, no. Okay. So let me, let me share. So basically, <laughs> yeah, this is very critical because I think, you know, like this is a lot of people get the two confused. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're not the first, like for sure. So arranged is basically when two people are like, are sort of, they come together and they both consensually decide to be together. They may have not known each other before. Um, maybe they like didn't go through a period of dating or maybe the dating period was not as prolonged. Like right. usually it's like a family member or a family friend or whoever that would mention, you know, like they would, that would sort of bring a certain marriage prospect. And then mm-hmm. you would kind of get to know the person, uh, talk to the person. And then both of you would sort of decide. So it's kind of like a blind date almost in a way. Right. Um, it's just a setup. It's just like, Hey, there's uh, this person might be a potential candidate. And then both of you would decide. Uh, so people are sort of helping to facilitate that union, but you always have a choice. Both people have a choice. Uh, whereas in a forced marriage, one or two people are, they don't want to get married, but there is either like force can look different, different. Um, uh, so it could be sort of just coercion, um, mm. coercion pressure, or just straight, straight outright force. Um Wow. Where there might be, you know, emotional blackmail, like physical confinement, like the degree of, you know, what sort of leads up to a forced marriage. It can look different for different people, but in different situations and circumstances. But uh, ultimately, there's the sort of the differentiating like piece, like the variable um, that sort of separates the two is consent. Wow. Yeah. And this is a common thing. Well, you know, forced marriages are actually happen like in so many places in the world. Right. Like not just uh, South Asia or Bangladesh specifically, mm-hmm. you know, happens in the States. It happens in Canada. It happens, you know, in Africa and Europe. It yeah. happens um, like in Asia. So there's a lot of places where where it, it exists and it's like an epidemic. And I don't personally think it's a very complicated it's very nuanced um mm-hmm. and there are a lot of factors right and a uh, lot of people who have gone through it or who are experiencing sort of the threat of it mm-hmm. sometimes they don't reach out for help or you know they they like afterwards after it happens even then they don't necessarily openly talk about it right. because there's a lot of barriers still that exist for people that or navigating it or have navigated it. It's, it's very tricky. Um, and so that's why when I was writing this memoir, it's like I was speaking to my own personal experience mm-hmm. with attempted forced marriage. And, you know, I, I want, I was very mindful, like I had to be careful in terms of, you know, how I, I shared the story. Right. Um, because I wanted to be fair and truthful to my experience mm-hmm. at the same time, 
you know, I also wanted to be clear because I, in, in terms of the difference between the two, right. um, and, and do my best to, to share that because I also don't want to add to the confusion around it. Yeah. And one thing I'll add to that is, you know, we are in a climate of like Islamophobia and increased hate crimes and racism still exists in our societies. Right. And so given that, um, you know, having these conversations about tricky topics such as forced marriage where people's biases can very easily kick in or people's, you know, stereotypes that they, pre-existing stereotypes they might have and prejudice. And so therefore, ta- like speaking to a topic like this is tricky yeah. because it, it could almost be like fuel yes. for those people who already are thinking in certain ways about certain communities and can actually, you know, create like a, deepen that sense of vulnerability. And so that was something that I had to grapple with when I was writing this memoir and personally, you know, understand my own personal vulnerability, but also, you know, thinking about the communities that I'm part of Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the fact that you mentioned earlier, um, and it ties into what you just finished stating, uh, that your dad used to tell you these stories because I'm thinking about storytelling, right? Yeah. We're constantly telling our own stories in different ways and sometimes vicariously other people's stories. Yeah. And I find that although we're doing this naturally as human beings, we don't tell our own stories enough to our um, next generation or, you know, things like that. Whereas our parents did. Yeah. But we don't. And and so I find that it's missing in the West once we land here, it's almost like it becomes this I, I, I syndrome that we go yeah. through and the programming and, and whatnot. So it's missing. And I think it's, it's important because they say what history is, is, is defined or told by whoever wrote the books or, or told the story, right? I guess they play on the name. I, I've heard people play on the name with his story and, and her story. And, and so it's pretty interesting um, that we're talking about your story. And now, were there professions that your parents were involved in? Like, what were they doing back home in Bangladesh before making the move over to, to Canada? Yeah, so my dad was uh, an engineer. Oh, my goodness. And, and actually, my entire family is filled with engineers. It's Sorry, like a trend. I'm going like <laughs> to cut you off for a second. That tr- You just tripped me up because... I was working many years ago with an organization and that's what they did was they worked with um, new immigrants that just came, but they have all these engineer degrees and primarily it was um, the South Asian community. Yeah. And so we would set them up and do these, you know, what what was it? What was the term that they would use? Um, The term was the Canadian way or something like that. Okay. Right. They had to, they had to be, acclimated to the Canadian way. And they were like, what does that mean? I said, to be honest with you, yeah. I grew up here, but that's a bunch of rubbish yeah. because there is no such thing. And if you look at it and you say, okay, well, we are a melting pot because of how diverse we are, then how can you say there is one way? Yeah. Right. So it just didn't make sense. And it was so conflicting because every single gentleman that I met during, during that time were engineers. Yeah. They were doctors, right? And it made no sense because now they have to work in a factory or volunteer for like four years before they get appreciated in some, you know, different role. And their degrees 
from back home doesn't make any sense or hold any value over here. Exactly. It, it never made sense to me. And more reason before I let you continue is if, if there's a major surgery that needs to happen, most of the time doctors and, you know, companies in the West go somewhere else and have it performed because they don't have the skill set. There's usually one or two doctors who have been doing this for centuries. Yeah. But yet if that doctor was to make his way over here, we would say, no, 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 no. You can't, you have to start from ground zero as if you went to high school over here. Yeah, exactly. And it's just so sad, but go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, I, I witnessed some of that firsthand, uh, you know, in terms of like the impact on my dad, for example, like when mm-hmm. cause we came at the end of the recession, so it was especially bad. Um, and I remember just, you know, he'd, he'd just be working a lot, working different jobs. Uh, I think he eventually went into a different field yeah. that still used some of those skills, but you know, not entirely, uh, but just kind of seeing that journey and, you know, sort of witnessing that, mm-hmm. of course, would leave an imprint, I think, on on the children right. of these people who are sort of experiencing it. Wow. And uh, with my mom, she had a master's in psychology, actually, similar, similar field as me when she was in uh, Bangladesh. But when she came here, and when actually after she got the master's in Bangladesh, she, she wasn't working. Um, but when she moved here, she started working and she started uh, working with kids. And mm. so it was sort of the first time that she was entering the workforce. So that was really interesting to see. And in my book, The Shaitan Bride, I talk a lot about these memories I had of, you know, sitting there in our living room, us reading books together, um, me giving her sort of English lessons and being her tutor. So it, it, as, as the eldest daughter, it, it was such an interesting role because you kind of become like right. a collaborator, yeah. but also like to an extent, like a, I wouldn't say caretaker. I, that's not a fair word mm-hmm. for me personally. I think, I think just, just someone that they would look up to, to kind of rely on as well. It's that it becomes a bit two way in, in, in that, in that way. So that was really interesting. And yeah, that's a, that's a dual, dual uh, purpose there. You, you were in the hat of a daughter and a coach slash mentor, tutor, all of it at once. That's yeah. When you came to Canada, your brother and sister, were they also around at that point or they came shortly after? Well, my sister was one years old when we came to Canada and my um, brother was born just a few years after that. So he was born here. Right. Yeah. So they're both quite young. Mm. And so from Thunder Bay, so I'm just trying to create a timeline here. So Bangladesh to Thunder Bay and then is it Toronto? Yeah, exactly. Where do you land in Toronto? So I think it was, we lived on Eglinton for just a few months. Mm. And then soon after we moved to the Lawrence Heights neighborhood. Uh, and there we spent the majority of, like, of my upbringing in Toronto there. Uh, and then afterwards to another like Weston and Shepherd area in, in North York. So moved around a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally myself moved like even more uh, different places <laughs> in Toronto. Like I, I lived downtown, I lived on the East End, I lived 
another spot in North York. I lived like I've been all over the GTA, just yeah. sort of experiencing like different neighborhoods. Right. But uh, in terms of like my family, we spent a lot of time in uh, Lawrence Heights neighborhood, and then afterwards, um, Weston and Shepherd area. Wow. So, how young were you when you first moved out on your own? University. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting because in my memoir, I talk a little bit about that when I, after, so I talk about an experience that I had when I was 19, when I went back to Bangladesh. And this is probably like, I'd say my second time going back there since moving uh, or migrating from there. So Mm -hmm. I was 19 um, and the whole incident happens there where there's an attempted forced marriage and then I leave Bangladesh by myself with the Canadian embassy. And I think I'm giving away spoilers now. (laughs) No, this is great because, because now we got to pick up the book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so I come back, uh, I do end up going back with, to my parents' home eventually, but then, you know, take it upon myself afterwards to, to take care of my own mental health Mm. and start, looking at living, living away from home. And then, you know, sort of at first living on campus for a bit, like actually connecting with um, the University of Toronto at the time to share a little bit about my situation. Mm -hmm. And then just for a few months, the last, uh, you know, few months of my undergraduate degree living on campus. But then afterwards, after that, living with like friends and other roommates all over the GTA. So it it was sort of part of my healing journey Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, creating that space for myself to understand myself and to, you know, basically come into my own independence um, and also just deal with my mental health and, and sort of what made sense for me. So, which at the time, I mean, maybe now it's not a big deal, but at the time it was a big deal because uh, for an eldest daughter of a South Asian, you know, family, like, and once again, I'm generalizing, like right. that's a big deal to sort of leave the, to, to live on your own and to, to take those steps, uh, especially after experience. experiencing such an incident. Yeah. 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 So, so for me, it was like a, a huge growth process hmm. going through that. Wow. So talk to me a bit about Lawrence Heights. What was um, some of your best memories or exper- experiences from, from living in that, that community? Yeah, you know, you've got to read my memoir because I have a whole chapter, <laughs> yeah. uh, a whole chapter on Lawrence Heights, and I describe it. And I remember, you know, I couldn't stop writing about it. And my editor was just like, you know, this is starting to sound like a tour guide. Like you were right, right. talk, talking about so much about Lawrence Heights. Like, you know, you're just going on and on about this neighborhood. Yeah. And like, I just want to give people a sense of like what it's really like. Um, so clearly there is some, some sort of connection to that neighborhood that yeah. I had, you know, growing up. Um, there's so many memories of Lawrence Heights. And, you know, I, I think people perceive it as, and I write about this in my book, mm-hmm. like in sort of a, sometimes in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that comes from racism, systemic racism, and the way certain neighborhoods are, you know, what certain neighborhoods are associated with, or the people from those neighborhoods are associated with. There's there's a lot of layers when it comes to, to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, but for people who've actually lived 
in a community like that, like feel like you have a certain experience of it that other people who haven't don't experience. And so, yeah, like I, I just, it was certainly like a lot of my, you know, formative years, like years where just really forming a sense of myself, my identity. Um, I just remember like all the fun experiences I had tobogganing down hills and going to Barber from library, going to the community center, going to like potlucks and listening to like Motown um, beats on our PA system. So what I loved about that community was just the diversity and just seeing people from so many walks of life, uh, which obviously was quite different from Thunder Bay. Like when I first landed there, whereas like I hardly even saw that. So it was, it was very nice to actually be in a community where I saw that diversity and I like automatically felt you know, so much more like comfortable, I would say, because of that. Um, You know, like, for example, I would go to Quran classes on Saturdays. I had like, you know, a few Muslim friends um, are my, my parents were friends with a lot of neighbors there. So we go to each other's houses. So I think that sense of like community and being a part of a place that got really fostered when I was there. Um, And I loved the school. I loved Florence Heights. I loved Flemington. I loved the teachers that were there. They're just so, uh, like, I think they just really brought, they really tried to understand the different cultures of the students, the world that they came from. I I appreciate that a lot. Um, And I was just, I was a a big, like, go-getter at school. So I just remember participating in a lot of student councils, um, you know, after, like, we had a lot of competitions that we were part of. So I was, you know, with other schools in terms of, like, sciences, math, and I was very involved. I was, like, one of those people you'd see, like, I think I I mentioned in my book that I was a valedictorian, like, so many times. And, you know, I was just really engaged. And I think, yeah, and, and I think just, and I think that is just an example of, of like how um, how vibrant the community was and how much it allowed me to express myself in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, in my book, it's interesting because I also kind of talk a little bit about like not really, not necessarily talk about it, but I also share some of the things that are in the backdrop. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there there is like crime there is like in other neighborhoods and communities as well like crime like drugs like some of the you know challenges like around like gangs and and whatnot like you know some of the that um and that's as interesting because as a child uh you know you don't know too much about these things like you're you're just kind of existing and you know you you're just but they're kind of there in the background um and I, i remember like like for example, if I if I were sometimes I would hear sounds, and I would wonder like what they were like were they like fa- fireworks, like you know gunshots like what yeah. were they like things like that. So in my book, I kind of share a little bit about sort of the you know these backdrop um, right. sort of experiences, mm-hmm. but not something that as a child I would process in my mind. Yeah. And so, so this exists, like these kind of things exist in so many other communities um, in Toronto, in, in Ontario. Right. Um, so I just wanted to like in my book, share sort of the dual, um, like the ways 
perceptions of of the community um, and then sort of like, speak to sort of my experience of it through ch- like a child's eyes. Yep. I mean, they, they say it, you can hear it from every culture. When the sun goes down, usually negative things happen if you're out yeah. there, right? So exactly. if it can happen at night, doesn't mean it doesn't exist just because we don't see it. Right. Um, exactly. But it does have it. Every community has, the, you know, it's dark side and it's bright side. So exactly. But what I love, what I really enjoyed, I was having the same conversation earlier today with a friend about the neighborhood. And when you're standing on the outside looking in and the media is, you know, your only lens into that neighborhood, yeah. you're missing out. Exactly. Right. But those living there and growing up there and raising kids and families there, it's it's a completely different experience. And I say that because I mean, you know, because you grew up there too. Um Yeah. I knew my neighbors and I knew the neighbors that were in the other courts and I knew the neighbors that were two courts over. Exactly. And, and it's yeah. scary because you move into the burbs or you move out of that neighborhood or neighborhoods like those and you don't know your neighbor. Yeah. Exactly. We don't talk to our neighbors, right? Like it's, it's crazy. And COVID didn't help obviously, but it's just the dynamics. So people look at these communities and they're like, oh no, it's, it's, you know, a field of crime and drugs and this and that, but no, there's a sense of family there Yeah, that only those living there can, can, you know, attest to, but it's just unfortunate that other people can't experience it, you know? Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Like, would you change anything about your upbringing? Um, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think like in my book, I talk a lot about sort of the, me being part of so many worlds and like at a young age and, and sometimes the, the like conflict that I experienced. And I think as a, an adolescent, like that's quite normal too, to, to mm. kind of go through that process. Um, not just like from a, from a developmental process, but also from a spiritual um, perspective. Right. I think there was, I speak about these conflicts that I have between my heart, my head, um, sort of my different messages about how to navigate the world and and uh, sometimes, like, these messages are very different or, or were very different. And so how do I reconcile that? Like, how do I make sense of that? And so I, I think one of the things maybe is, like, I, I often, I, like, I have a tendency to, like, I'm an introvert, I would say, or maybe an ambivert, but I think a lot. And mm-hmm. I, I, it's important for me to make sense of things and to act from a place where, you know, the intention is clear and then there's some sort of reason or logic to doing what I'm doing. And, and so I, it's something that I naturally do or try to do. And I think, you know, a lot of the times the conflicts that I was experiencing, I did it all internally. Um, and it wasn't easy for me to talk about. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's like more sort of changing my upbringing, but maybe I would, try to communicate a little bit more if yeah. I, you know, if I were to go back in time or find other ways of expressing myself. So maybe that, that, that would be something I would, maybe if I were to go back into time, I would have tried to do right. a little bit more of. 
like right now I'm working as a social worker therapist with, you know, different clients. And a, a lot of my clients are from South Asian uh, diaspora. And so, you know, I think there's often this feeling of co- the communication with parents not being sort of a two-way dialogue. And that goes back to some cultural factors, um, goes back to family dynamics and, and other layers. Yeah. But I think so, so those factors are were at play for sure. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, oftentimes like you're in these family dynamics, there's sort of like certain expectations around like child and parent. Yes. And, you know, in South Asian Asian culture, just generally speaking, it's like the parent is the authority figure. And if you were to kind of share too much or talk too much or question too much, it's kind of looked at disrespect yep. or dishonor. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, there's other things too, like around like, you know, gender socialization, like as women or young girls, you know, when should you be talking back? Um, mm-hmm. how, when should you be staying quiet? Like what makes a good girl versus like a bad girl? Of course, like those kinds of, you know, messages are right. kind of always there and sort of playing into things. Um, a, a gap to an extent, because of course, parents won't necessarily know, like you're in a totally new world. Right. They won't, and that's like their experiences growing up will, of course, to an extent, be different from, you know, what their children experience in this new place mm. that they're in. Um, and so I think there could, in terms of wor- like life experiences, worldviews, there could be a growing gap. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, sometimes there is more similarities than differences. And we think we kind of just focus in on the differences. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I, I would say maybe what I know now and, you know, what I experienced then, now I have the words to explain those things and not only explain them, but like see, identify it and, and talk like about it with other people and even support other people through it. So, you know, obviously we can't go back in time and change things, but I think, you know, some sort of effort or outlet for more communication on, all these different um, factors that were sort of shaping and influencing Mm. like the communication and relational experiences. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And of course I think this could be applied to any family, any cultural um, context, like just, just having the space to have a two way dialogue. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, our parents sometimes having a lot of, they have a lot of stories, but it's like in the West, we don't really see that much storytelling and sharing of those experiences. And I think when you actually listen to some of these stories, you get to learn so much about, about, you know, your parents, your ancestors. um, And there are lessons in that. And oftentimes I I find that when I do listen, I find similarities between my experiences and and that of those before me. And then there's a connection there. And I focus nowadays, like I focus a lot in on the connections. Um, And so I think there, there's something there about what you, what you said about the importance of storytelling and sharing. I think there's something really key there. I think that's the link like between, um, you know, I think we need more of that. Yeah, because a lot of our identities is in those stories. Yeah. A lot of it is there. Generics and, and history and and culture 
everything is in the, in the stories. Yeah. And it's not just the stories and, and, and whatnot, but it's also, you know, if you really think about it, it's the tone and how the story is told. Um, yeah. The little nuances, the things that you might laugh at, but you might miss the message in that moment because you're enjoying the story. But then when you, when you're alone and you reflect on the story, you're like, wait a minute, that was a message in the story. Yeah. Right. And so you have those moments and that's the beauty in the story because it teaches you. And it's not going to be like for me, you know, coming from Ghana, it's different. The culture is slightly different, but I, I'm sure it's similar in so many ways yeah. that, you know, you will get, you know, whipped by your teacher if you're late, your principal, if you're late to school, and then you get home, you get whipped by your parents because, you know, you were late. And why, why were you late if you left home on time kind of thing? Yeah. And so that's the culture, but you don't know that when you grew up here. And you have no idea what lessons those scenarios are teaching you because somebody looking from the West is going to say, oh, that's abuse. Exactly. That's so key what you just said there. Right. But they they don't see the lessons and they don't see the benefits. And so they're only looking at it from one lens and that lens is telling them, no, that's abuse. That's what abuse looks like. Yeah. So you take that person from that culture and then you, you match them up with somebody who only knows the Western way. Yeah. It's going to be a hard situation for both of them because they can't understand each other. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, you know, like my memoir is so much about that. It's just like, as I was saying earlier, you know, these conflicts that I was having internally that I speak about in my memoir that also kind of started to show up externally, like in terms of what was happening in the the world politically at the time, because mm-hmm. my adolescence happened in the backdrop, like what of um, 9-11. Right. And, uh, you know, and some of the sort of messages I was receiving about like what, what it meant to be a Muslim, for example, um, hearing those narratives in the media mm-hmm. and then having my own internal experiences where, you know, I have my personal meaning and narrative that I give right. to my faith and my experiences of that. And then not feeling as if there's space for me in this world mm. or in, in my environment, because it's almost like, like how I experience different aspects of who I am. Like it's not, it's only going to be perceived in a right. certain way or right. it'll be boxed into a certain um, way. And, and so it's very invalidating and it's very dismissive mm. and, if we don't have spaces where people can recognize us holistically and you know, all our different experiences, um, I think it makes it hard to like feel like you belong yeah. and feel like you can connect. Um, and so when I experienced what I did in Bangladesh and I came back and I was trying to access mental health services, for example, and I met with different therapists and, talk to different people, I think I, there were a lot of times where I was really cautious and I felt like, you know, if I shared what happened to me or if I talked a little bit about, you know, what had gone on for me growing up and at home and, and how I was feeling, like, are they going to actually, are they just going to label this as, you know, 
hey, this is just another example of like Muslim women living in an oppressive environment or Mm -hmm. like, oh, the parents are so wrong and they're, you know, they've, um, they're just terrible people. And like, it's, I, and you know, once you, once you kind of hear that or experience, like, like you said, the tone or if it comes across as somehow sort of invalidating your personal meaning and understanding, like, I think what happens is that you just don't, you don't end up wanting to share more or you don't feel safe. Um, you don't want, like you, you, you end up not seeking that help. Um, so there were a lot of, there were a few times actually where I felt that. Um, and so like, for example, like I remember one therapist was, uh, said something to me like, you know, well, this is common in cultures that are tribe cultures, um, where they can't really think and they're just, conform to the group or something like that. Wow. <laughs> like, that's interesting that you've just wow. said that. Um, you know, it's just kind of like, that's not how I'm thinking about this. And right. certainly when you read my book, like you can, you'll see there's, it's a very personal experience where, you know, it's based on relationships mm-hmm. and identity and, and connecting to family and histories and traditions and like all of these, you know, deep, um, deep experiences and it is just kind of reduced to this like, you know, assessment and label of interpretation. And so I think it's just like being really mindful of, of the the, uh, assumptions that we make and how quick we are to like be biased in our thinking and just being practicing more openness and curiosity uh, to experiences that are very different from our own. Um, or that seem different, um, and just really being inquisitive and trying to understand the world. That's key though, being inquisitive, because I find over here, my experience, I worked in mental health myself for a while and, um, with an agency anyway, and I've worked along people that suffered. I suffered through it. You know, we all go through it. Depression is a mental health. Um, so people don't realize that that's the first thing, but what was interesting is when you were talking about, you know, your experience with that therapist or, or, um, that individual, that's a common thing. And, and, and ignorance is learned and it can be unlearned, right? Like you can only be ignorant about something so long until someone educates you. And if you choose to stay ignorant, then that's, that's a problem as well. But I find that when, when someone is telling their story, we have no experience in that that universe that they've gone through or they're currently in. Yeah. Yet we find the words to make them feel as though it's not real. Yeah. Right. And that they should get over it in, in so many words. They don't use those yeah. words, but you know what I mean? Right. And, and that's the part that's scary because you go into the space thinking I'm going for help. And yet your voice gets even more silenced. Yeah. And now you leave thinking, wait, did I just take 10 steps back or like exactly. what happened here? Right. And that's the scary part. And they don't think about that because all they want to do is prescribe and diagnose. And that's pretty much it next. Yeah. You know, exactly. And, and it, it, I, they cause, I, I find in some scenarios that the person is not connecting to you, meaning they're not listening. Cause that's, that's an, that takes a skill by the way, listening. Yeah. Right. People can hear you, but they're not listening to you. It's a totally different thing. Exactly. You know, and I, I, I find a lot of doctors don't listen. And so 
Yeah, it does more harm than good, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I'm curious, you, you when you mentioned, um, you know, 9-11, how did that period impact you and your relationship with not only your culture, but your religion? Yeah. You know, I'm so glad that you differentiated between the two. <laughs> like, not a lot of people do that. Um, so like culture and religion. Yeah, yeah. And and so and that's really key in, in my memoir as well. Mm-hmm. So the way the way I talk about like faith and religion in my memoir, um, you know, I there we really will see there's sort of like three different layers or levels, I guess. Like I talk about it um from like like a political mm-hmm. Islam and then there's you know, a cultural version. And then there's like a very personal one that I connect to. And for me, that's a very spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. So, so I think 9-11, you know, in in my story, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting because when this incident happened to me, that was the the quote unquote war and terror was Mm -hmm. really like the, the, the rhetoric around that. Um, and the whole sort of suspicion of Muslims and, you know, Muslim women and being oppressed and Muslim men being violent, like that rhetoric was so on the rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it did like, that overall in the world happening at that time. Like, of course, collectively, I think it impacted the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably kind of trickled down into and a very micro level to individuals and families, of course. Um, So I think, you know, it, it, the way I described in my memoir is that it, it sort of brought some of the conversations out into the light. So, you know, like within my family, for example, there were more conversations about like Muslim identity and um, identifying as a Muslim. Like, what does that mean? Um, You know, how connecting to faith, connecting, to religion, like being a Muslim in in the West. Uh, So like that conversation became like a a conversation that uh, would be more common, like say, for example, with my father or with, um, you know, extended family members. So so that, I think it added, it brought more attention to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think for me, you know, kind of like, I think in my book, I describe it as sort of, all of a sudden it's, it's like everything that's within me, like there's some sort of link, defective link that's somehow connected to these terrorist groups, for example, like always kind of feeling like just identifying as a Muslim, somehow I would be associated with that, or I'd have to carry around this, this uh, feeling of being defected in some way or some kind Mm. of like link to them. And so, um, because you saw it in the media, you saw sort of the treatment of Muslims. You saw, you know, like, and as the years went on, like the rising Islamophobia, like all the things that you wouldn't think would actually happen, even in a place like Canada, was like blatantly happening in front of your eyes. So it's like this sense of, and I actually, yeah, I actually described it as a panopticon. Like you're kind of always being watched, like, you know, suspected and watched. Um, and but not only by governments and other people around you, but like within the Muslim community as well, mm-hmm. because people are 
and it makes sense. Like they're feeling threatened. They're feeling, you know, like they don't want their religion to be misrepresented because it is already being so misrepresented um, and misunderstood. And so it's like, you know, who's whoever sort of speaks about Islam or about their experiences, you know, they're kind of under a microscope as well within the Muslim community. Like I, you know, cause there's this like pressure as well. Like what, what are you going to say? Like, are you going to like, what, are, you know? And so I think there's that. Yeah. And I think there's also, and I, and I didn't realize this until later. And I talk about it in my book. Um, I think there's, it's interesting. this really interesting phenomenon that I realized happened to me or happened to me where it's like the, depending on the environment that I was in, it's Mm. almost like this weird um, sense of, oh, I have to control my Muslimness or hide my Muslimness. Interesting. Depending on the environment I'm in. And, and because, because there's already these assumptions about me um, or Muslims in general. So for example, one of the assumptions is like, you know, they're so close-minded and they're, you know, they just, they're not inclusive. They keep to themselves, uh, for example. And so I remember like sometimes in social environments feeling like this really strange urge to have to prove that otherwise, um, like to try to be more, um, like, okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll do, even if there were certain things that I didn't feel comfortable with at the time, like I would like in terms of, you know, my personal, like religious beliefs, like I wouldn't feel comfortable doing certain things, but I would do it anyway, because it's like, but I would be perceived as sort of either being an outsider or being too Muslim in that environment. And it's interesting because then in other Muslim, uh, in other community, like um, environments, so mm-hmm. say there's, it's an environment where there are a lot of Muslims, it's almost like I, then I kind of like internally, it's like, well, you know, how am I not Muslim enough for these environments? Right. So it's like this internal experience of like a pendulum and kind of going back and forth, but it's just being shaped a lot by the people that I was around. And mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, like maybe other people, ex- other Muslims experience this as well. And maybe sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's not uh, as conscious. But I realized that, you know, for a period of time, like that was an unconscious thing that was happening to me. Right. Um, but then I, like, once I started to realize, like, hey, wait a second, like, what, like, why is this being shaped by the mm. environment and yeah. not like a, a certain like value system that I'm personally feeling connected to and um, kind of expressing, regardless of the environment that I'm in, right. and so really kind of doing that soul searching work to figure out like, what are those things? Like, what are those principles and values that really resonate? And and that sort of started my, you know, inner journey of trying to understand and learn about, about religion and faith and how I feel about it. And mm. my experience of being a Muslim in the West, like really kind of reflecting on it, reading other Muslim writers, um, you know, and, and uh, learning about that. And then also getting comfortable with mm. accepting myself for just wherever I'm at. Um, And I think in doing that, it's like, it's, that's a different experience from, you know, just following a religion and faith because culturally that's 
yeah. what you're supposed to do yeah. um, or following it as sort of like a political response mm-hmm. almost like, which is, I guess, fine. Like, you know, everyone has their own ways of how they make sense and relate to religion yeah. and faith. But I think for me, in my personal journey, it was this whole experience. Like 9-11 was sort of like a catalyst in, in terms of, you know, me going through this whole internal journey of differentiating between like what's political, what's cultural, what's like, what is actually resonating with me at a spiritual level. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm still on that journey right now. Like I'm constantly engaging in my own internal like dialogue and process about that. Um, yeah. That's and, a- like I- I just sometimes think think about like people who are born like after nine eleven, right? Like, and mm-hmm. it's like a also generational. Um, I think differences in experiencing yeah. um, how you make sense of how you connect to that identity, and like, there's just people will, and it's so natural. Everyone's going to have their own path and journey. Um, but yeah, for me, it was like so critical to just me doing that searching work that's a lot of work though i mean that's it's hard work right it's it's not as easy as it sounds and i tell people that too because often someone looking on to you thinking oh okay she's successful she's doing this she's she's got this going and she has a smile on her face life's got to be great right (laughs) (laughs) and and they're not there when you know the curtains are down and the doors close and you're shedding tears and you're trying to make sense of the world and and who you are and why, why do you feel this way? And why are you going through this? Is it just you that's going through this? And I'm saying yeah. this because I go through them myself, yeah. you know, and, and, but the reward is that sense of liberty that you feel when you realize, wait a minute, I'm comfortable in this skin. Yeah. Right. I'm accepting this thing. I love the skin. Like I'm, I'm yeah. falling, like learning to fall back in love with who you are again is, yeah. is the most liberating and and freeing thing you can ever ever experience exactly but but the work to get there is what scares the heck out of everybody yeah because you got to go through the dark spots too it can't just be the clouds and the sun there's a lot of dark spots that you didn't even think were there because you suppressed it for so long exactly and then when you you know you got to open those doors again and, and go through it but Thank you for sharing that. That's that's a beautiful story. And it's it's I think this is why the book is what it is. And I want to transition into the book right at this moment here because how do you pronounce it? Is it the Shaitan? It's the Shaitan. 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 Yeah. It's like the similar to Satan, basically, in Christianity. Mm -hmm. Shaitan bride. Now talk to me about that. And the title. What does the title mean? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this, I can go on forever about this, <laughs> but cause there's a whole, basically when I was younger, you know, I would hear these stories about women, um, mm-hmm. women who, you know, they were possessed by jinns. So jinns are creatures that are made of smokeless fire. Um, and they are a thing, like they exist like mm-hmm. in Islam. Mm-hmm. And similar, like, you know, other, other, uh, worldly creatures. So for example, angels, right. like in Christianity, Abrahamic religions, there's angels. So, um, jinns are one of, you know, one of those other worldly 
creatures. Um, and so when I was growing up, I heard stories of women being possessed by jinns or women who had fallen in love with jinns. And um, the reason why was because like, they exhibited these symptoms of being possessed. Um, and one of those symptoms would be like the women's being so reckless in love. So there's this word called ishk. It means like you're so in love, like you're so in, in passion. Um, you're so passionate. You're so like, you know, there's no rhyme or reason right. to doing what you do. Um, that there's the only sort of explanation for that is that you're possessed by a jinn. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's specifically in the, in my story, like in the context of, like falling for someone or being in love with someone or being seduced by someone who would be considered unacceptable. And, uh, and so women who do not follow, you know, that what they're supposed to be following, right. what's good for them. They're kind of, they kind of, you know, take risks and um, they're, they express emotion, they express passion. They um, end up falling for people that, like would only quote unquote cause like harm to their bodies, to their societies, to, to their religions, their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, I hear these stories. And then in my book, I say how even after I moved to Canada, I continue to hear these stories, um, but they just take different forms and shapes. Right. Um, and really what I'm talking about is, you know, like women in society who are sort of like, they just don't follow the conventional path. So somehow society finds that there's something wrong with them. Mm. Right. And like they're demonized in some kind of way. Right. And, uh, in, in my story, like there's a parallel between, uh, yeah. So sorry, before I go there, I want to say that I, I term all of these women as the shaitan bride. So I come up with that name. Um, that's what I call them. Okay. So it's not an actual myth or anything like that. It's what I call them. Yeah. But there is a myth that relates to that um, in, you know, Arabia, Persian and Indian cultures. And it's this story about Majnu and Layla. So a long time ago in the story. So what it is, is Majnu falls in love with Layla, like they love each other. But then Layla's family does not accept Majnu. So Layla gets a forced marriage and she's, you know, can't be with Majnu. And Majnu is like so heartbroken by this. And for the rest of his life, he just feels this void of not having Layla and just sees Layla everywhere. Um, And people kind of say he's crazy. Like, you know, he's just so, so sort of like overtaken by this. His entire life is just related to pining for Layla. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's different interpretations of the story. And one of the interpretations is a Sufi interpretation that says that, you know what, like it's, it's because um, the void that he feels is actually the void he feels being separated from God. And Layla was a catalyst for him getting in touch with that void. And, you know, he's tasted that ecstasy of being connected with God and then losing that connection. And so forever he's sort of pining for God. So it's the, so in that version, Leila is a catalyst and for his deep spiritual transformation and him, you know, seeing the reality of, of the existence of God. Oh. So um, that's sort of how it's 
framed in that story. But for me, like what I say in my book is like, well, why is it that when I hear these stories of these women, the stories, the narrative stops when it, when it, uh, for them, like, mm. it's like the shaitan has meddled with them. They're possessed by jinns. And now they're like a social recluse. Like they're, they're not ostracized. Right. And like they're deemed, they're doomed basically. Or, you know, they're seen as either being, uh, like she was asking for it right. to be in this position or, oh, she was so stupid and naive right. and, you know, and so like, why isn't it that those women, like how come their stories are not like transform, transformative? Um, where's the transformation in their stories? And so in my book, like I'm sort of paralleling, you know, my story with mm. the story of the Shaitan bride. And at some point I take ownership of the story and I twist it and like, and I can't give it away. No, but, give it away. Don't do that. <laughs> but, but at some point I, I question that narrative mm -hmm. um, through my own like experience that I go through yeah. and then sort of, and then frame it as I've gone through, you know, my own transformation right. through this experience. And that's how I'm shifting that narrative. So it's an it kind of connects back to what you and I were talking about earlier about stories and the power of stories because it's interesting like in this scenario that I just shared with you you know these there are stories that these stories are passed down through time yeah. and they're shaping people's lives like every day even if it's a myth yeah. um, and stories also in the form of rumors in the form of like people. Um, you know, sharing prejudices and, yep. you know, assumptions about other people and how those things, those things impact us. Um, and so let's, it's not only about like, so my book is not only about, you know, taking the, like the, the stories of our, our parents and our ancestors and finding our ourselves in those stories, but also like the, taking these stories and, really inspecting and mm -hmm. understanding and then maybe deciding which parts of those stories um, are not serving us anymore right. or that sort of need to be changed. They need to be tweaked. And we are, we are the writers of yeah. our stories. Yeah. Why, you know, we're sometimes we find ourselves acting out these stories ourselves or being sort of the victims of these stories because yeah. of these, you know, we're, we're kind of placed in this bigger script. Yeah. And we're just following what the script says, but it's like, actually, no, we can take the pen and rescript our, mm -hmm. our lives. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, it, through this act of me, even writing this book, I'm rescripting my experience, like, or, or the interpretation of my experience, because I'm sure, you know, the people that were involved in what happened, they will have their own stories yep. of why it happened the way it did and and you know all of that but as a person who has experienced the attempted forced marriage as a person who's you know gone experienced that um yep. abuse i'll say that word uh in that in my life it's like I, this is how i claim my power um i can rewrite it i can i can share it the way that i want to um, and i think it's just not not just about me but I think a lot of women, like when they go through experiences, you know, their voices aren't heard or 
the ways that they share their stories or what they say, like it's always like another narrative that overtakes it or, you know, people don't really listen to, to, you know, and so there's a lot of twisting and turning. Um, So it's like, like, you know what, like we speak, like this is, this is me sort of claiming um, what happened. And so, and owning it too. So yeah, so the Shaitan Bride is is a representation of that, um, but she's actually also a real person too. <laughs> I'll just add that in there because in the story, when I go to Bangladesh, there is an actual woman, like one of these women, mm-hmm. um, that people have you know say things about, and nobody no- really knows what's going on. Right. But she doesn't talk to anyone. She's like by herself, um, you know, and and so and there's all these like nobody really knows. And so, you know, I see her and I'm constantly thinking about her and I'm like, who is this? You know, what happened to her? And then seeing myself in her, just being so intrigued by this person. Uh, So, so it's an actual person, but it's also sort of like, you know, um, an an encapsulation of this like phenomenon around the stories that shape women's lives. Yes, or a metaphor or literary device. Yeah, it's it's funny as you're sharing um, the story. I'm thinking about my son, who's three, and you know about stories. Like he loves Legos and he loves cars. So put the two together. That's what he's building every single day. And so this afternoon, he makes these cars, and I'm thinking it looks to me like it's a boat. He's like, no, it's not a boat. It's a car. Right. And it's it's a car with the hovercraft and he's going in on me about what it is. And so I obviously quiet down and I listen to him because as you're telling your story, I'm remembering him telling me what his story is and didn't want me to change his imagination and what he's interpreting that creation that he you know what I mean? That he created. Yeah. So it's almost like he wrote his own story. And here I am. I'm saying, no, 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 no. Here's a traditional way it should look. Yeah. This is my adult brain telling the child he can't and shouldn't imagine. And so yeah. the, the minute I catch myself, I silence up and I go along with his story. And it was a much better story than my version. <laughs> <laughs> right. So as you're telling yeah. me the story, I'm thinking... This is what it is. It's it is storytelling. You're thinking about yeah. this woman and you're curious. Yeah. And you're wondering, yet without even knowing her, she's also shared something with you that allowed you to put this book together. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, how did the book come into existence? I know there's a story behind how it even came to be published. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to write it first for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a few years, I tried to do that because a, a lot of the times, you know, I would be, um, like since coming back from Bangladesh, like I would be thinking about it. Sometimes I wouldn't be thinking about it, but it would be obviously impacting me or there at the back of my mind, just me wanting to make sense of, of, essentially this like trauma that happened to me. And so I wanted to put it on paper and see it for myself. And so I tried to do it in so many different ways. And um, I found that I I never felt it was being represented in the way that I wanted it to be represented or shared. Like it, 
felt two dimensional when mm-hmm. I tried to put it on paper, whereas I experienced it in such a three dimensional way. Mm. So, um, it took a few tries. There were a lot of blocks as well. Um, and I first tried it as a nonfiction. And then because I was experiencing those blocks, I figured, you know, what, I'm going to try it as a fiction instead. Maybe a little bit, I'll be a little bit more removed mm-hmm. and it'll be easier. So I took a course at the Humber School for Writers and I worked with uh, Shyam Salvaduri, who's like a diaspora like fiction writer. Um, and I got some really great feedback, but the story I was writing in fiction form, I felt it wasn't, it was getting too removed mm-hmm. from me and my experience. I had built a whole other world, right. which was great. But in terms of, there was a certain agency, agency I think that I felt when I used my own voice. Yeah. Um, and that was reinforced when I took a memoir writing class at George Brown. And during the class, I shared pieces of what I had written with classmates and they responded very well to those pieces. And that was my first time actually sharing my writing with anyone. Mm. Uh, So I was really pleased to hear that my writing had resonated with people from all different walks of life. Uh, Cause at first I thought maybe it's too niche only will certain people will respond to it or understand it. But apparently it had a lot of universal appeal and people could relate to it. And so I was encouraged by my classmates to try to write it for, for the public. And, uh, so I, you know, felt that encouragement and I continued working on it. And, uh, what happened was, you know, one of those classes, uh, we had a publisher come to our class just to talk about, you know, the publishing industry. And they mentioned that they were looking for manuscripts and I submitted mine at the time. And they just really loved the the story, the pitch. They, you know, were, they felt like, you know, this needed to be published yesterday. That's, I think that's what they said. Wow. So, so they really like wanted uh, the story to be told. And so, yeah, so I was, I think, very lucky in that sense that that window opened up for me. Um, thank God, I think it was because of God and the timing of that 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 happened and so I just kind of focused in on the book and I told myself okay I'm going to do this and it's interesting because that happened around the beginning of the pandemic so like yeah (laughs) we were all just at home and you know I we didn't go out like there weren't I wasn't commuting so I think that in a way oddly helped because Mm -hmm. I had a little bit more time but I just was so engrossed in writing the book and that entire year I just focused on it. Yeah. And then it it came into fruition and I was so nervous about like whether or not it was actually going to be published because, you know, with the pandemic and all, um, I think like a few people were laid off, like a lot of people were laid off from their jobs, like certain, you know, what was normal, like was no longer normal. Things were like changing and shifting and so much unknowns, but, uh, yeah, I'm so glad that it did end up coming out. I didn't have like an in-person book tour. I think there could have been more promotions, like what the promotions that you would, you know, be able to engage in if, if things were quote unquote, like normal. Um, but in a pandemic world, I think I did the best I could do in terms of launching the book. So yeah, now it's out there in the world. 
There you go. Look at that. That's a beautiful story too right there because it's funny. Luck has something to do with it, yes, but a lot of it came from you being prepared by even starting. Yeah, right? that's um, true. It took a, it took a, it was a process. Yeah. It was a, like a few years, like a few years of me thinking about it, um, a few years of me trying to write it. Yep. And then me uh, sharing it with people, which is something I'd never done before. One thing I learned, like timing is everything. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just seemed to happen. Like, I just feel how things just seem to be easier all of a sudden at that specific moment in time. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I just, there was something about that that made me feel like I was called to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I felt a calling to do it. It's almost like, it's so strange. Like how I, like how do I explain this? Like, it just felt like I was supposed to do this. Yeah. Like I meant to share this. So we're nearing the end. I got to transition us into this thinking out loud segment that I have. I'm going to shake it up a little bit and I'm going to ask you the most random question. Okay. Okay. You can't overthink it. You got to give me what comes to mind as soon as you hear this. You got two choices in the, in the question that I'm going to ask. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Would you rather drink all your food from a baby bottle or wear invisible diapers for the rest of your life? <laughs> Um, oh my gosh, this is hard. Invisible diapers, invisible diapers. That's what you're going with? I I like the process of eating, like, like biting and chewing and like that. That's a whole other experience <laughs> i tried juicing before and i hated it yeah yeah because it didn't it, it, you, you lost a lot of things like that process of chewing right like it's important exactly yeah <laughs> oh my god it's like if you ask that question to yeah i was gonna say like to a european or a person um like even from my south asian background like where there's so much so much around food like yeah. rituals and People eat, like when they're eating, they're spending time with family. Right, right. <laughs> they're, they're talking for hours. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. It's like, you have to sacrifice all of that. <laughs> so I guess everybody's going to be wearing invisible diapers. That's it. Yes, yes. For sure. <laughs> oh man. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That was fun. Um, so what's next for you? In the next five years or so, what's next for Sumaya? I am taking it as it comes, one day at a time. Hmm. Uh, I still want to share more when it comes to the Shaitan Bride. Like it, it has only been a few months that it's mm-hmm. been out. Yep. So I would love, like, more in the more immediate future, I would just love to, you know, share more mm-hmm. about this book, connect with different people, you know, really try to put it out there. Um, I'm working on another book, so I really do want to continue my writing. I I think it's such a great way to express myself, and it just helps me connect with humanity. Yeah. So I definitely will continue pursuing that. That's awesome. I just made it a vow, made a vow to myself to live a life of passion, 
moving forward and just always like pursue the things that bring me joy. Even if it's not, you know, something I'm doing all the time, but just adding more bits of joy into my life every day. So I'm really just trying to focus in on that. You know, that's that's actually called living. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A a lot of us are not living. We're just working and, and we're zombies. Like literally. Yeah. So, and yeah, definitely. Yeah, we don't even I want to change that. Yeah. Like we don't take a minute, not even a second to enjoy the small victories or the things that make you smile. Right. Like we don't. Yeah. We're so we're dependent on our devices and what others think of us and what the world's the picture of the world is painting of us. And we're so consumed by those things that we miss, you know, that flower that's blooming right by your foot and it's not supposed to be there because of the way, you know, the concrete surrounding it. Yeah. And and you look at the sun, you don't realize that that in itself is magical because why is it so colorful? Yeah. You know, exactly. little things like that. Like I, I catch myself every now and then I see birds flying. I'm thinking, how are they doing that? Even a plane. I'm thinking, how is that even possible if we have this thing called gravity? Yeah. Right. I allow myself to get lost in those moments because I realize it's almost like an anomaly. It's it's not. Why can't I do it? They can do it. The bird can do it. Yeah, it has wings, but still, it shouldn't be able to just fly like that. Like it's, it's yeah. you know, and, and but you, these are thoughts I can't say out loud to some of my peers because, again, I might end up in that straitjacket because of the way they might interpret that. Right. Yeah. And so, and that's what it is. We don't allow ourselves to imagine anymore, but when a kid does it, it's beautiful. Exactly. Right. And it's not acceptable when you get older and and that's the unfortunate thing. And that's why we are where we are today, I think. Yeah, Um, I totally agree with that. It just connects back to the whole, like being curious about other people, about the world, being inquisitive. Like, I think there's just an assumption that we already know. Mm-hmm. Like we know everything we need to know, or we're, we're just, you know, like all we need to know is the box that we're in, but yep. there's just still, so there's still value in, or, or we need to know in order to make some sort of profit out of it, yeah. or there needs to be some sort of like outcome or whatever, but there's value in just like learning and understanding about things for the sake of it. Yeah. Just, just being a human. Yeah. Like I think that. I think sometimes we forget about that. So I got two questions to ask you. Um, the first one is going to be, how can people support your book? Where can they get it? And how can they get in touch with you on social media or even book you to, you know, share the stories that you've shared with us here as well? So you can get The Shaitan Bride at your local independent bookstore. So I know uh, a different book list, for example, carries it. Uh, another story also carries it in Toronto and you can get it at chapters Indigo. You can also get it on Amazon. And if you, if you know, you're somewhere else in a different part of the world, you can go to book depository and you can order it from book depository. Nice. Yeah. So those, those are some of the ways and amazing news recently, uh, my audiobook launched. Hey. So, yeah. So if you're, you know, a person that likes to listen as opposed to, to read, then you can listen to the audiobook. You can, you know, while you're driving, while you're cleaning, while you're doing whatever it is, like it's uh, very convenient. Nice. You can find it on Audible. How 
How was that experience like? Did you record that with, with your own? Was just... Oh my gosh, it was so amazing. <laughs> like, I'm considering becoming a voice actress, honestly. Wow. Like, it's, it was actually pretty like interesting. Um, a lot of like authors don't get this opportunity, so I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Uh, basically, it was Tantor Media that reached out mm-hmm. to my publisher asking you know, if I'd be interested in recording the audiobook. And of course, I said yes. There, you know, there is. Uh, they could have they could have hired someone else, but right. I specifically requested that I record, you know, be the person narrating it mm-hmm. because I, I felt, you know, it's a it's a memoir and right. it's such a personal experience that right. I just wanted to put my voice to it. Right. Like it didn't feel right to have anyone else read it. So I have like no training in this at all. But I just kind of showed up and for about 10 days straight, I just read and, um, you know, I had someone on the other. So it was like a, it was a studio mm-hmm. and orange, orange lounge TO. Okay. And uh, I was in sort of a recording booth yeah. and there was a sound engineer on the other side of the booth on the other and and uh, they would give me sort of directions or mm-hmm. they'd correct me if, you know, they had suggestions. Right. But um, for the most part, it was just me reading and listening back to see, you know, how it sounded and re-recording some parts if needed. And so is it like in, in, in pieces or like the reading, like how long would they let you read for before they said, yeah. okay, play back and cut? And I read for eight hours straight. Like wow. and we did full days, full days for 10 days. Wow. With a lunch break. And, uh, and <laughs> At least they fed you. <laughs> and, and a couple of breaks here and there. Like whenever I needed, you know, a sip yeah. of water or right. tea or whatnot. But for the most part, it was straight reading because we had a deadline. Mm. And, you know, I had to just try my best. Yeah. And the first day, actually, I think it was a Friday. And, I think I lost my voice that weekend because wow. <laughs> it actually strains your vocal cords. Yeah. Like I didn't expect that to happen, yeah. but it did. And like, I was literally like in bed from that weekend wow. trying to recover. Yeah. I drank lots and lots of tea, which helped. And even during the, while I was recording, like I were narrating, I was drinking tea throughout. Yeah. So I found the warm drinks definitely helped me, oh, yeah. but yeah, it was it. But after, you know, the first few days and I got used to it and then it wasn't straining me as much. Wow. So, so yeah, I learned a lot. And uh, there were a lot of because I use a lot of words in my memoir that are not English. Yeah. So I have Arabic, I have Bangla, I have Urdu, Hindi, I have actually have Korean in there. And Wait, do you, British speak, accent. Do you speak those languages or in? I, yeah, so not Korean, um, but but you know there was like I was in a specific part of Toronto mm-hmm. and I was describing the environment and there was a uh, like you know stores that were titled in Korean like mm-hmm. store title and so I had to like speak those words or I was describing some of the food that right. I ate while I was there so that's where that that came in but oh, okay. um, in Bangla is my mother tongue Mm -hmm. and uh, Hindi and Urdu. I can also speak a little and understand like my, 
my family speaks, uh, they can speak Hindi, Urdu, Bangla. Like my grandparents were fluent in right. Urdu and Hindi. Uh, so I have familiarity with it. So if I hear it, I understand it and I can speak a bit of it too. Right. Arabic, I learned while I was reading the Quran, but it's very different from conversational Arabic. The Quranic Arabic is so different. Um, but I was mostly reading like surahs from the Quran. <laughs> that okay. I, had a, I had like a couple in my book, so that was fine. So anyway, all, all that to say that the pronunciation probably wasn't the greatest. And I was, <laughs> I was aware of that, like yeah. even for Bangla, because I, my Bangla is not like, it's not that great. Right. So, but I, I, you know, was aware of this and yeah, maybe I could have asked for some other person to just speak for, you know, those sections or parts, but I wanted, I wanted the memoir to represent me and yeah. who I am is a person who navigates her world through all of these languages. Yeah. Even if it doesn't sound a certain way, yeah. there's a li linguistic hybridity there is what I call it. Like my, the way I see the world is a mishmash of like these different languages. And yeah. I think each language situates you in a totally different paradigm. Yeah. And, uh, my world is a mixture of paradigms. So me, you know, speaking those various languages in the context of this audiobook is just a representation of me being my authentic self, which yeah. is a person that would naturally be doing that. Right. You know, like when I speak with my parents, for example, I, I speak a little bit of English, a little bit of Bangla, you know, occasionally I'll even speak a little bit of like, I'll bring in some Hindi words. Yeah. And I'm just so used to doing that. And it's, it's just because that's, these are all the things that I've been exposed to. So, right. yeah. So I think that, uh, and all of those languages for the most part, they are related to each other too. So they're not strikingly different. So mm -hmm. it was actually pretty fun. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is so, um, expressive. Yeah. Like I felt I could you know, express myself. Like it was, a, it's a whole other sort of creative process. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's interesting because when I was younger, my secret dream was to be an actress slash writer lady. Oh. So I'm like, Hey, I got to live like part of my dream. Yeah. I'm a voice actress. That's it. That's it. But yeah, so. uh, but you do have a voice for it though. So, I mean, if somebody else approaches you after hearing your audiobook. And says, "Hey, can you read mine? I think you should just jump on it." Yeah, yeah. I may consider doing that. Yeah. It's actually really fun. Yeah, yeah. Something to think about. How can how can the listeners um, follow you or support you on social media? So you can visit my Instagram page if you want more like daily updates. Not daily, actually. I shouldn't say daily. I don't post daily, but <laughs> just updates in general on on you know what. I'm doing with this book, like different events, um, or even new writing that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. uh, so my Instagram is at samaya.matin, S-U-M-A-I-Y-A dot M-A-T-I-N. You can also visit me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page for this book. Uh, I think it's called Samaya Mateen, author of The Shaitan Bride. Nice. Uh, you, I also have a website too you can check out. www.samayamateen.com. And also I'm on Goodreads and 
on Twitter as well. My Twitter account is at semi underscore Mateen. So in terms of like supporting the book, I'd really, really appreciate it. You know, after me sort of sharing a little bit about what this book is about, if you are interested in it and want to learn more or read it, please, you know, get yourself a copy. And then after reading it, if you can leave a review on goodreads.com, mm. that would be super appreciated. Sure. I think, I think that's going to be my first um, act, but I, I, I do want mine signed. So we have to make yeah, that work. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. It makes it, it makes a huge difference with the reviews. I think because as a fir- first time author, if nobody really knows my work or knows about this book, yeah. you know, and so it could be so helpful, you know, the more it's sort of talked about or shared People like someone who really needs to read it or yep. who could relate to it or maybe who's been through a similar situation, like they might really or maybe not. Maybe it could be someone who's never had any experience related to this or is this is some, something completely foreign to them, but they're just curious and would like to learn more. I think, yeah, it's just really making people aware of it. And yeah. it's kind of hard to do. There's when, a lot. There's a lot, yeah. though. I mean, this book, it has it has a lot of different components. Yeah, and I think any and everybody who anyone who picks it up is going to benefit and get something out of it. And so, I do encourage everyone um, to grab a copy, read it, and leave that review because it's only going to help her um, grow and and actually share the book with the rest of the world. Right? That's the idea: is to get the story um, to as many you know eyes as possible. So, please make sure you follow on social, but get the book. You got the audio book now, so there's no excuse as to why we can't pick up the book. Okay, so make sure you you support her on that. And what's beautiful is I'm going to have the um, links to the website as well as her social media handles. So it'll be in the description of the episode once we air. So make sure you look at that, get the details and support. And it's easy. Her social media handles, literally her name. So it's not it's not yeah. hard. <laughs> right. Um, before I let you go, how would you like to be remembered when it's all said and done oh that's a hard one it is it is it is oh my gosh I have to think about this <laughs> can I ask you the same question sure. sure and then maybe that'll help me think of my answer no not a problem for me um, it's really I want to know the impact what I want to know is how much of an impact did I leave on on people's development, their lives. Yeah. Uh, how many people I was able to either make laugh or think. Yeah. Oh, and, I love that. You know, yeah. Cause I love to laugh. And so my goal actually every day is to get at least minimum is too good. Like, you know, the ab workout type of laugh in that's my goal every day. If I get two of those, it's a great day for me. Yeah. That's well, it. you certainly made me laugh today. So. <laughs> and think, and think, made me think too. You know, so, so it, it's simple. It's simple for me. It's just impacting people's lives if I can. I guess I would say a similar thing, just like something that helped them work towards a goal of some sort or reach some sort of insight or some sort of growth. Mm hmm. I think like growth is 
something that's important to me and growth and some kind of awareness. I'm just brainstorming now, but like these and thinking out loud, but those kinds of um, words right now are coming up for me and resonate with me right now. So maybe something, you know, just reading this book or having a conversation with me about similar experiences or different experiences, like in that process, maybe if there's a little seed of some sort that helps that person in their life, either grow and develop in some kind of way or, um, you know, bring, come to some kind of awareness of something, even if it's something within themselves that's already there. Um, I think, yeah, I like to see people really reach their own potential and, and, um, overcome like barriers that were, that they don't need to experience, but are there, um, in society. And, I think I can personally relate to that. Just it's important for me to, I know that word self-actualize, just like really reach, try to reach for the stars and work towards really um, getting to a place where I feel like I'm expressing myself to, to the most of my ability and, you know, working towards my potential. So if I see that in someone else, then that makes me happy. So if, you know, if anything I can do or say, or, share that might help another person also experience that. Like, I think that would make me happy. My goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. For the space and the conversation. It's very insightful for me. Very. Likewise. Likewise. I learned a lot. There's a lot I didn't know. And I'm glad we had this conversation because I learned a lot and I have to thank you for that. Um, for the listeners, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And please make sure you subscribe, you download the episode, you share it with any and everybody that you believe will definitely benefit from any part of the conversation that you've heard. And so support the show, continue to let it grow, spread it so that we can get more people to pick up Samaya's book. And so until next episode, love, peace, and happiness. Mm-hmm.